Welcome to the Design the Future podcast, where we talk with women leading the way towards a better built world. Design the Future is hosted by me, Lindsay Baker, with Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Design the Future podcast. It's good to be with you. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. Yeah, and here we are. Uh, for us, I don't know. I'm feeling like we're going into the fall. It's also the fall here in the Bay, which is like, you know, blistering. Summer. Hot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually hot weather. Uh, it's, it's our summer. That's right. Um, but yeah, like business-wise, it's fall officially in my mind. <laughs> That's true. And, and definitely all the deadlines have Pick back up again. Yeah, everything that that feels like, right? Yeah, it's high boil, high boil, I would say, in both temperature and uh, pace of work. (laughs) It's true. It's true. But last week, we were definitely, we were feeling the end of summer. And I, you know, I I think, I think I did it right this, this year. I'm I'm feeling fortunate that I, I managed to do things that felt like summer. It's just hard with the Bay Area, because now is when we actually get to do things like sit by pools and enjoy being, you know, like a warm evening or two. Um, and That's right. That is not a thing that we actually do during our summers. We go somewhere else. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, it's, it's always confusing, but nonetheless. It's- it is. I wonder if it's just, if it's always, I mean, I, I'm sure that people are, who are, who grew up here, I did not grow up in the Bay area. So I, I am still not really accustomed to the, weird season um situation you know so it always it does feel odd to me not to have warm nights in the summer yeah um, yeah being a midwesterner myself so yep exactly no but I am I'm it's uh it's nice when we do get a warm night or two I'm enjoying it I'm trying to celebrate those moments for for what they are and then of course also do things like getting my emergency bag prepared once again as we do annually now uh I mean Indeed. it's not even really annually because you don't know when we might have wildfires but uh, yep and uh, yesterday yesterday was rolling blackout day which I was we were all prepared I don't know if you were on the list yep, but my neighborhood was on the list <laughs> your neighborhood was on the list yeah yeah no we, we were not on the list but I had already charged up my little my little emergency battery that I have for moments like this because yeah it was I mean you, you never know and it's the hard world you know one of the things I just wanted to throw out this is like transitioning into the professional that I have been fascinated by recently and I'm, I'm thinking about is um, cooling centers here in our area um, so in other words sort of public places where people can go yeah. if they need to find it if they need to cool down they need to get out of the heat um, they're all libraries and I think that that's, um, I've, I've worked a lot with public school buildings where the school's community is thinking about how to turn schools into sort of resilient centers during moments of disaster. Yep. But um, we don't talk as much about libraries as a space type that is an important sort of part of the fabric of resilience of communities. And, and, and I think we should. And I was looking into it. I was like, you know, are there programs to get solar panels on libraries? Not as far as I can tell. Uh, so I don't know if listeners are aware of these kinds of, uh, library centric, uh, programs in our, in our world, specifically around resilience and emergency sort of scenarios, but it just feels kind of like an, um, a really like fruitful endeavor for some folks. Maybe we can figure out a way to do some of that at Living Future Institute, but it's, um, I, I would love to hear any stories that you all might have about um, about the role that libraries play in all of this, because I mean, not only are they wonderful and important civic institutions, but also um, so it seems to be the kind of logical go-to for our local communities in in moments like the one that, that we're in here in California right now. Yeah, I think that's right. And I the other thing is that they have this sort of, I mean, there I think there's a sense that there are fewer and fewer places that are truly open to everyone and that those are kind of the last outposts in many mm-hmm. ways. Yep. Um, and so the notion that those would, that we would invest in those as resilience hubs and cooling centers and other things is, makes a whole lot of sense to me. It I, makes I'm a whole lot like, of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I really love the idea. It reminds me, I don't know, like in architecture school, 
one of the studio projects that was pretty common and, and loved by studio professors was sort of rethinking libraries. And um, I can understand why that's the case for that profession to think like, okay, how are we completely like shifting our understanding of what a space is supposed to do? And yeah, I'll admit, I don't, I don't really think a lot about <laughs> like the value of, of, of libraries, or I don't see a lot of that conversation happening in our, in, in our world. Um, it seems like some days people are just comfortable with the idea that they would fight a fade away, you know, like the space type isn't yeah. anymore. All the books are online, whatever that is. But it's a seems like a really cool opportunity to. It is. I do. I agree, Lindsay. And but it's also complicated. And I'm sure um, those folks that are working on libraries now um, can talk a little bit about this. But um, there, the libraries are being asked to do so many different things mm. than they were 20 years ago. Um, yeah. So it's it's really from a program standpoint, I think it's more complex than it used to be. Which doesn't mean. I mean, that's just you know that's just a more um, there's just a lot of different aspects to that assignment now. Yeah, um, yeah, it's totally, yeah, I can, I can completely see that. It's, it's really just a revisiting of, of some of these, um, more narrow definitions, but that can create obviously strain. I mean, just even the question of how well these places are funded and yep. the kinds of people that work there and what they're trained to be able to do. It's, uh, yes. Yeah. It's a, that's yeah. a lot. It's a, absolutely. I don't know. It's a fun challenge. And well, one you know, Lindsay, I think that our guest today actually may have something to contribute on that topic as well. Um, we are really lucky to have Chandra Robinson with us from Lever Architecture today. Hi, Chandra. Hi, Lindsay and Kara. It's great to be here. We're so glad to have you. And um, I know you're working on some libraries, so maybe part of our conversation can touch on that. But I want to first start with a little uh, introduction and um of, of you and, and what the firm does. Um, Chandra is a principal at Lever Architecture, which is in Portland, Oregon. Um, and it's a design practice that is recognized for material innovation. Uh, Chandra recently completed a LEED Platinum Campus for uh, equity-based foundation Meyer Memorial Trust and is currently working with communities on transformative designs for affordable housing and libraries, pursuant to our discussion just a minute ago. She is passionate about creating beautiful spaces that are accessible for everyone and enjoys working closely with clients to create designs that are expressive of their values. Chandra is a member of the Portland Design Commission, a founding board member and treasurer of the National Organization for Minority Architects, NOMA, Portland chapter, and on the advisory board of Hip Hop Architecture Camp. Um, Chandra, to get us started, I was hoping that you could tell us um, a little bit about how and why you got involved in architecture and interested in sustainability as part of design. What has been your path? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, my path was uh, not a straight one. I always wanted to be an architect as a kid and my mom was always really excited about that. But somehow I, you know, was in school at the UW and I took a couple of classes and I thought, mm, maybe this isn't for me. So I decided to study geology and physics instead, which seems wildly unrelated, but it's also about kind of how things are made and history and layering. And so I still felt that they were kind of related. And I actually did a lot of um, sea kayaking. I did a lot of trip leading and outdoors. And the reason I ended up studying geology was just because people were always asking me questions about things out in the world. And I wanted to know the answers also. So I studied that. Physics I studied just because it was super interesting and I wasn't particularly good at it, but I think those are the things that I want to study, things that I don't know about and want to learn. Um, and then eventually, you know, I came back to architecture because I was still thinking about it all those years later. And I eventually went to the Boston Architectural Center um, and that's just a design school and it's, uh, it's an apprenticeship based program. So you basically work the whole time you're in school. So it was a tough program, but you know, when you come out of it, you know that you really want to work in the profession. Um, if you don't, then you, you quit and you go to a different school that just does studio straight up and, uh, and you don't get into the details and the nitty gritty in the same way. So I was really excited to, to get out of school and know that I loved architecture and to start my career in Boston. 
Oh my gosh, I, I I feel like you were that that is a great program to hear you talk about it that way because I certainly know a lot of people who come out of architecture school without knowing whether they want to practice. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Exactly. So, spent okay. a lot of time in school, but you come out and you're like, hmm, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. So yeah, I avoided that. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Well, that's yes, that is impressive. And also, can you maybe? help people with that question that they might be mulling over around architecture like what would you say having gone that path uh, that people should know about entering the profession of architecture what, what what should they be interested in and good at yeah I think that you know people going into architecture they have an idea that it's all about the exterior of the building and buildings that are objects in and of themselves but a lot of the work you do is you know fabric and it blends in a little bit more and you really just have to be interested in designing for people because that's what buildings are for they're for people so if you forget about that which i think sometimes it's easy to do when you're making a big statement um, then you're really missing the whole point is that we're making spaces for ourselves to be in and to be comfortable so i think you really have to go into it with that mindset in order to really enjoy what you're doing um, you know an architecture school is is kind of brutal. It's all um, critique all the time about your ideas and about your presentation of your ideas. So I think you have to go into it knowing that that's going to happen and you are going to take that critique and you're going to make your work better. Um, I think that sometimes you get into it and you know what kind of architecture you like or what architect is your favorite, but you should be able to think about a space that you like on the inside of a building somewhere that feels good to you or is interesting to you in some way and be able to kind of think about that when you're designing and how you can make that space um, really cool or, you know, make it really work for the people who are in it. And all of these things that you do in architecture can really apply to so many different careers. So I would say you also can say that, you know, you can go to architecture school, you can work in architecture, but you don't have to stay there forever. I always say that life is long, you should try different things. Um, I think change is good. And uh, that happens a lot in architecture as well. So uh, I think there's a lot of places architects can be. Um, and it, you know, there's a lot of information that you're responsible for as an architect and can take a really long time to sort of move up in the profession. And that's not for everyone. So a lot of folks decide that, you know, they're going to take a a sidetrack and go into graphics and marketing and go into consulting and all kinds of different things. So it's a really, really big field that can be very general and useful to lots of different areas. So it, I would say, think about those things as you're going to ar into architecture school and decide if it's really for you uh, sooner than later uh, so that you know what you're getting into once you actually enter the career. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love all of that. And it's, I mean, it is, it's a, it's it's nice to know that there are lots of really wonderful things you can do other than architecture with an architecture yeah. degree. Um, but yeah, but you you have you have you are now in a really wonderful place. I would say, like you know, a place that probably many aspiring architects um, would love to be in. And yeah. um, we're it's just um, exciting to hear you talk about how how those choices um, that you've made have influenced that. Um, I'm curious from where you are now, uh, what you're most proud of accomplishing so far in your work life, um, whether it's personal or professional or, you know, specific projects or things like that, yeah. what stands out? There's a lot, you know, I, I, I graduated in 2008. And so I've essentially been working in architecture since then with maybe a little break when the economy was terrible and no one was hiring. Mm -hmm. um, but so it's been a little while and, and it does take a long time to kind of move up or to find a place where, you know, it's just the right fit. And for me, um, being at Lever is the right place with the right fit because I have so much opportunity to kind of be out in the design field and talk to people. And really what I'm most proud of is the work that we do serving the community through great design. Um, because there is, there's an issue of equity there if you don't have the money to pay for an architect all the way through, or you are um, not realizing sort of what, how many design teams are out there that you can choose from that you might not end up with something that's 
what you want or that represents your your community or your group very well. So I'm really proud of the work that we do that serves the communities like library projects and affordable housing, um, you know, lots of different things that we do. And I think that that work has allowed me to be much more visible in the community and in the architecture community. And that to me is really important because in Oregon, there are only four licensed architects who identify as black, who are part of the AIA. And so that doesn't mean there's only four black architects. It, it means that there are designers who haven't gotten licensed yet. It means that there are lots of folks who have decided to list themselves as two or more races or um, not declare what their race is. But by, by only having four people in the AIA in Oregon who identify as black, um, that is, that's, that's really profound to me that there could only be four. And I didn't realize that until I got licensed and I put myself down as two or more races because I'm also half Mexican and I actually grew up with my mom. So I really identify as Latina. And, um, and then once I saw that there were only three black people on that list and there were maybe eight Latinas, I said, okay, well, for the AIA, I'm just gonna be black. I'm not gonna be two or more races. Um, and so I think that being visible in the community so that kids know that there are architects who look like them, um, that's what's really important to me is just to be visible. And you know, to be visible, it, I wouldn't even have to do any projects, right? I just have to go around talking to people about architecture, but um, you know, serving the community. My mom was a social worker for a long time. And so that's really sort of part of our um, family culture uh, is helping people. And so this is how I do that uh, through the job that I have chosen. Um, and then you know, networking and mentoring is also really important to me. So besides being visible, I kind of want to be part of a young person's network so that, you know, they might not think that they want to be an architect when we first cross paths and they're in some kind of program that I volunteer for, but maybe in the future, they'll be like, you know what, I actually am interested in design and I know someone and I'm going to ask them questions and I want to be that someone. Um, I want to make sure that that kids out there, I didn't know an architect when I was a kid. Um, I still somehow made it into the profession. I don't know how it took a really long time. Um, but I want to I want to be part of a group of people who helps make sure that kids can pursue the careers that they want. So that's really what I'm most proud about is, you know, serving the community and being visible to students who might want to do what I do so that, you know, in 10 years, there's, you know, 20 instead of four who are on that list. That's amazing. Really interesting perspective on well, I especially love the idea of sort of translating visibility to mentoring, especially mentoring with like a, a potentially long tail to it, right? Like staying yeah. in touch with people. That's so powerful. Doesn't happen fast. And you, you know, it's not something that you say by next year at this time, you know, this is one of our strategic goals as a firm, but instead, you know, that's part of the five-year and the 10-year goal is to say, can we get a couple of students that we've worked with a bunch who end yeah. up in design school? I love that. I really do. And, you know, the, the other thing that makes me think of um, is that I think people forget about how, um, about the benefits of mentoring to the mentor too. It's so yeah. energizing and powerful to engage with young people yeah, um, you know, it really is fun. And, and it just, I don't know, I've been doing a little bit more of that myself recently. And I forgot about that part of it and how it absolutely, it's not like a service piece. It's like, it totally brings joy. It <laughs> does. And kids have such crazy and great ideas that it, that's really joyful to see. You're Indeed. like, you know what? I didn't think about that. And that sounds great. Let's do it. Absolutely. It's such a relief too, to some of the sort of there's like a jadedness in the professional community that just comes with time. And that, yeah. you know, because of the system, you know, there's certain ways that things are done and all those things that sort of make, you know, feels after a while, we get a little jaded about all that. And so that yeah. kind of fresh energy, fresh eyes, it's so powerful. Okay. Yeah, sorry for absolutely. the mentor, <laughs> mentor digression <laughs> here, but um, 
I want to shift gears just slightly and ask you about a specific project. So it's, I think this is one that actually some of the listeners will be a little bit aware of because um, at Meyer Memorial Trust, it won an AIA Coat Top 10 award this year. Um, and it was presented, you presented at Living Future and I'm sure at several other um, events. Um, and it seems like you and your team really were able to demonstrate how equity and sustainability are, are in fact interlocked. And I wondered yeah. if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I would love to. It's absolutely my favorite project that I've ever worked on. And, and that's for a lot of reasons. Um, we had such a great team um, for Meyer Memorial Trust and it really all started with the client. So Michelle DePass was the CEO at the time. And it was really important to her that we really push hard on equity in absolutely every place that we could. And so that really started out with the design team. You know, it started out with, they partnered with a developer and that was led by Anule Halaba, who was the, um, the partner at, um, at Project. It, project is the name of the development company. And it's hard to look up. You type in Project and, you know, you're going to get nothing. But um, so she was the first person who they brought on to the project to kind of work through it. And uh, she's a black woman. And then they brought in us, Lever, our design team. And I got to be the project manager, project architect on that. And so as another black woman and our CEO was a black woman. And in addition, um, some of the other development partners on there were women of color. and. The contractor was O'Neill Walsh Community Builders, and that was led by two women. Um, and so you can imagine sort of sitting in, in a project meeting and it being all women and half women of color, that was pretty remarkable. I, you know, in all my time in architecture, I've never been on a project where it was all women in, a, in the room at any time, you know? Um, and so I think that really started us off on on the right foot saying that it's important for us to push equity in all places and let's start with the management team let's start with the people who are going to run this whole thing and what it really you know coming down to it because it was pushed by the client and the client had us put together this great team we didn't really have to convince anyone of the sort of equity pushes that we were gonna do. We didn't have to get anyone on board. Everyone was really excited to do this work and to figure out how to do it really well, knowing that we were gonna to wanna to do this on other projects in the future. And so we were able to do, because of the client, we were able to do a lot of different things on the project that you know not everyone's gonna be able to do. But what I hope is that you know, by hearing sort of the story of the project and the things that we did on it, that people won't be intimidated by how much we did, but instead can think, well, look, I can take one or two of these things and do it on the very next project I'm on. I don't have to do all of them because that is uh, probably more than some clients are going to want to do, but it's a start and I think it's a great place to start. So thinking about what we did on the project um, was really about making sure that we were hiring people who um, maybe had been overlooked for other projects. And so we provided stretch opportunities for a lot of the um, subcontractors. And so for instance, there was a casework sub that was a minority woman-owned uh, company and they did really great work. They hadn't done a project of this scale before. They had been doing a lot of residential and they hadn't done quite this high a level of finish before, but it was very clear from what they had done before that they could perform on this job. And so the idea was to bring in folks like that to let them do a little bit more than they'd done on other projects and help sort of raise their profile and sort of give them more experience so that they could be successful on bidding on other projects in the future. And, um, you know, besides doing all of that, we made sure that there were um, high numbers of women and uh, minorities who are actually working on the job because a lot of what we do in the industry is about minority women-owned and emerging small businesses and different states have different um, sort of names for all of that. But that's really all about who owns the company. And we wanted to not only focus on who owns the company, but who is getting money from the project. So who's getting dollars in their pockets, right? And we wanted to make sure that this project in a black community was actually representing uh, the community it was in, in terms of the, the labor force. Um, and I think that we, you know, because we also had high sustainability goals, 
Um, you know, we started out knowing we wanted to do whatever we could. So we knew we were going to be in lead somewhere, but we kept pushing on it until we had a good path to lead platinum. And, you know, every year, I don't know if it's every year, but every time there's an update, you know, there's more things that you have to do. It gets a little bit harder and a little bit harder. So essentially to do platinum, you have to touch every system and every material in your project and do the best you can on those in order to get there. And so in doing that, we were really thinking about um, all of our sourcing of all of our products. And we especially focused on wood sourcing because Oregon is timber country and wood is a really big industry here. And so thinking about, you know, how we source the wood was really important. And we sort of developed a plan with the client um, that represented their mission and values, right? So their mission and values are really all about equity and about sustainability, education, innovation. And um, they're a foundation that just provides grants within Oregon to organizations that um, are making strides in all these areas. So so for Meyer specifically, we um, decided that uh, here were the things that were going to be important for sustainable wood sourcing. It would be where did the wood come from? Do we know who is harvesting it? Do we know who is processing it in a mill? Do we know who's creating the final product out of it? Are those folks managing the forest well? Are there any tribal enterprises that we can work with? Are there any... Um, uh, families or uh, minority owned uh, mills and um, producers of all of these materials. And uh, then next we sort of thought of, well, where are those coming from? Are they coming from Oregon? Uh, because that's a way to sort of support and boost your own rural economies is by getting things that are close to you. But it also, you know, impacts your, your carbon footprint in that you're not moving products from very far if you can find things close by, which we can because we're in Oregon where there's lots of timber. Um, and so thinking about that, we also then said, okay, well, if we're getting any mass timber products, they should come from Oregon first, they could come from North America second, um, and sort of North America, Canada third, but we wouldn't use any products that came from overseas because in, in mass timber, there's a lot of products that do come from uh, Austria, other places in Europe. They've been doing this sort of mass timber CLT for longer than we have, um, but we wanted to keep everything as local as possible. So those are some of the things that we thought about in terms of sustainable wood sourcing. And it was sort of on a scale. So we would say, well, if there's a 10% premium to get either FSC certified, local product, all these other things, then we'll go ahead and just get it. But if it's more than a 10% premium, we'll talk to the client and decide um, based on their a discussion of their values, which was more important. Do we go ahead and pay this sort of extra premium or do we spend that somewhere else in the building? Uh, maybe that's more visible or more impactful. Um, and then thinking about that, you know, that's about sustainability, keeping things close and knowing that forests are really well managed. But it's also a lot about climate justice, right? If you know where the products are coming from and you know the impact of creating those products on those communities, then um, you know how much good or bad you could have done, right? Um, when we get things from really far away, we really don't have a sense of how the extraction of that material or the processing of that material actually impacts the people who are doing it or those communities, right? So I think of climate justice as protecting the environments of people that we can't even see, that we don't know where they are. We just know we're buying a product from there. So that's one of the reasons we sort of try and keep it local. and you know, climate justice really is about equity and sustainability going hand in hand. And so I think the reason we were able to do all of these things is because we were looking at both of them together. So um, it's not really just that the building owner spends less on utilities, has good air, indoor air quality, but rather that we're thinking about the whole world and where all of our products come and make sure that we're not making someone's home environment worse. Um, I think that Another part of equity that people don't really talk a lot about that's really important in design is, um, is not just ADA, but sort of going beyond ADA and thinking about, you know, ADA is designed so that one person in a wheelchair can navigate a space. But when that person in a mobility device of any kind is in that space, you, there's typically not enough room for someone else, right? And so part of it's about creating community and allowing people to be together in a space so you're not singled out for any reason. 
So we, you know, made a lot of space in a lot of places to make sure everyone could be there together. We also tried out about, you know, 20 different types of seating in the office and had all of the staff from Meyer come and try them out because people with different body sizes are not treated equally. So for instance, if you like me have a bigger body, sometimes a chair with arms on it fits too snugly and you don't want the arms. But if you're someone who has um, mobility issues or has a back problem or anything like that, you might want the, the arms on the chair in order to push yourself up and out of that seated position. So it's really about thinking a little bit more about everything in order to create equitable spaces. You know, outlets in lots of places. There were some folks at Meyer who had their own um, sort of medical device that was like a chair that they used and making sure that they were able to easily use that um, in the workspaces was important. So making the workspaces large enough to accommodate that anywhere. Um, there's just so many things that you, you can do if you really start thinking about people and how people use the space. Um, and not just think of equity and climate justice as something that has to do with, I guess, the whole world, but rather it impacts individual bodies as well. I know that's a lot of stuff, right? And we did do a lot of stuff. But I think if you look back at it, there's actually a white paper that was written by Sustainable Northwest, Northwest, which is a nonprofit organization. And they wrote a white paper on it that you can find on the Meyer Memorial Trust website. And it really just describes this process and how choices were made um, to make sure that we we're really thinking about it and making um, equitable and sustainable choices in our wood sourcing. I love it. It's, it really is. I mean, it's such a great um, leading ed pro edge project in that way, because as you say, not every project is going to be able to do everything that you did. Yeah, there are so many examples of pathways to take, and it's just incredibly powerful. Um, it does seem like you learned so much there too. And I'm wondering if there are specific things that you're bringing from that experience into other projects now. Well, yeah, you know, we're actually using Meyer as kind of a model for other projects, and we're applying um, those same sustainable wood sourcing principles on it. We're thinking about equity and about people in the building in the same way that we are on Meyer, And we're really using it kind of as a template for all other projects. Like it doesn't matter what client it is. If we can find a way to um, push equity and sustainability, we want to do that because that those are part of our firm values. You know, that's what's important to us. And so that's the work that we like to do. And in fact, we, um, you know, talking to Sustainable Northwest because they were our nonprofit partner in that, they actually also are consulting with lots of other teams um, in Oregon and even beyond in the rest of the country where they are using these same principles on projects that have nothing to do with lever. They're not lever projects. They're not Meyer Memorial Trust projects. They are just um, any other project you can imagine in Sustainable Northwest is guiding them on how to do this procurement. And in addition to that, you know, Lever uh, won a uh, timber, a wood innovation grant from the USDA. And that grant is specifically for us to develop a digital tool that will help designers make sustainable choices and to find sources of a sustainable wood for their projects, right? So we've done all of this work, but we don't, it's not proprietary. We want other people to be able to use it. We want other people to be able to um, benefit from all of this work that we've done in the past. And so we're creating this tool so that that will be an open source for anyone to use. And we have about a year to create it. So it's still in the process, it's not done at all. But I'm really excited about that, that our research team is working on that right now. And it's gonna be something that can be spread far and wide. But you know, as far as lever projects go, we are using this on many other things with many other clients, uh, just at different scales, depending on the client. Um, and uh, I think that, that that's really important as a way that the firm grows is that we take what we've done before, you know, we're really invested in innovation. And this is, you know, part of that. This is innovation in the industry and changing how things are done and how you procure things for your projects. So that's really important to us to innovate in any way that we can in the field. And, um, and that's, uh, 
it's really working right now. We're able to, you know, everyone in the firm is really excited about it and we're using all of these things on our other projects as well. That's great. It's really great. And I love hearing about that tool and listening to you describe it made me think in my head. And that is what is so awesome about this community is the idea that you would learn something that seemed really transformative. And then your instinct as a firm and a team is to make a tool and share it. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Yes. So, um, and I just wanted to ask if there are any other specific projects that you're working on now that you wanted listeners to know about. I mean, I don't know if you want to, we were talking about yeah. libraries before, maybe there's libraries. I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of them. So uh, we're here in North Portland and we actually have a lot of projects all around us that are part, we're part of this community. And so we like to work in our community. So we do have a couple of library projects right now, the Albina and the North Portland libraries that are both here in um, North Portland. And those ones are lead goals and are the larger library. We have one that has two small additions and they total about 1500 square feet. So it, it does not seem to pencil to put, um, to put solar panels on such tiny buildings, especially because that one is surrounded by these gigantic chestnut trees that don't let too much light in. But on our larger building, which is about 38,000 square feet, that will have a solar panel array um, and it's in a great spot. So it's gonna get a lot of exposure and be able to actually generate um, a good amount of electricity. Um, not enough to feed back into the grid, but enough to run lots of things in that library. And, you know, like you said before, libraries are being asked to do a lot different things than they were 20 years ago. And, you know, all of our libraries in Multnomah County right now are, are sort of just places for books and then little kids. There's only one of our branch libraries that has a makerspace in it, but now libraries want to be places for people and books. Yes, you can get books online. Every library has those kind of resources, but there's an in-person aspect to the libraries. It's really important. The, the library staff who work there are part of the community. They know all of their patrons who come in and know what they need help with. Um, so folks need help with computers. Um, folks need places to gather as a community. Uh, they need places to just be a third place besides work and besides home what's your other place that you spend time and for a lot of people it's the library and so really making these more welcoming to people from different cultures and different communities is important and some of that we do through wayfinding and through representation of lots of different languages but specifically for these two libraries it's very much about the black community because these are the libraries that have always been um, in the neighborhood and have welcomed the community for as long as they've been there. And um, so these are really about what are the ways where we can make people more comfortable and make them feel like this is their space. And so we're, we're doing that on these libraries and we're also doing sustainable wood sourcing and we're doing solar and we're really connecting with the community in a lot of different ways by having a lot of one-on-ones, having focus groups, which are really affinity groups for indigenous people or black folks in the neighborhood and really trying to understand what it is that they need in their lives that libraries provide nowadays that we can bring into these libraries. So that's really exciting. And then there's also, um, you know, you may have heard about the Portland Museum of Art um, and that's in Portland, Maine. So this is really Portland to Portland. And we're really thrilled to be on the shortlist for this project. Um, to uh, build a new addition and to renovate this really beautiful museum in Portland, Maine, that's sort of at the highest point in the city. And it's so beautiful, you can see the water, you see the whole town. Um, and what they really wanna do is make their space uh, more open and more equitable and invite people in in a way that they already represent in their programming, but they don't have space to do it. And so this is an awesome project for Lever because that really is something that we're focusing a lot on. And, you know, because we're from Portland, Oregon and LA and not from Portland, Maine, we've brought on consultants who have expertise. And I think that's another big thing that, um, you know, that I'll, that I'll say is open source is that if you're working in a community you're not familiar with, then you need consultants who do know the community so that they can help you because we are not experts in anything, right? We're only experts in building something, but we're not experts in other people's experience or what they need or what they want. And so you cannot authentically um, design for other people without engaging with people. 
um, you really have to find out what the community needs. And so we're working with Openbox and we're working with Chris Newell. And these are folks who are experts in sort of creating space and bringing lots of voices into design processes. And Chris Newell very specifically is uh, our consultant who, um, who will represent the indigenous communities and tribal nations in Maine and sort of the Northeast area. So, you know, we're very familiar with our um, indigenous, indigenous nations here on the West Coast, but not on the East Coast. And so I think that's important to just admit, like, you don't know everything and you need a consultant to make sure that you're doing right by the community. Um, so that's what we're working on for Portland, Maine. And we're, we're just really excited. We're in great company. It's a great list of shortlisted teams and um, just being part of this competition is such a thrill and everyone in the office is really excited about it. That sounds like a really cool competition and cool project. And I love this idea, Chandra, that, that um, <laughs> it's, it's, I guess part of it is this idea that uh, we are experts in building things, but it doesn't mean that we're experts in other people's experience. And I, yeah. I love hearing there's so many ways in which your, your team is bringing a really brilliant um, a sort of analysis of where to draw that line in a, yeah. in a way that is fundamentally different. I think I'll, I think there are architects out there who might think that they're not making assumptions about people's experience, mm -hmm. doing the obvious thing, and, mm -hmm. and yet it's really making a lot of presumptions about how people how people exist in space, their bodies, how we like how different we all are um what we need etc it's just and and yeah your work has really been so inspiring um i know to to me but i think to many people and just really interrogating the question of what where where we what we assume we are, we know and are good at you know and where yeah we and, yeah i mean i think it's pretty easy to recognize that you're not an expert but i think you're right that <clears throat> there are a lot of things that we make assumptions about. And I think that's what we all have to question now is, you know, what, what assumptions have you made? And is there any way that you can fact check them? You know, yeah. <laughs> who are you, who are you going to ask <laughs> about this? Like I've made this assumption, is this really, really wrong? Okay. Um, but I think that we, we have a design process and a lot of people are probably sort of like, this is how we do it. This is how we know we get a good product in the end. But I think I think design teams have to rethink that and understand who it is that is on the team, who's representing the people who are gonna be in the building. Um, and especially for public projects, right? That means that you really need to engage with community members who are gonna use it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's great. Okay, I wish we had so much more time to talk about this because I think I, th I think this is super important, and um, we only have a couple more questions that we have time for. So I want to get into having a better sense of from you of where you think the industry is headed or how we're doing in sort of changing practices. So I guess one way we like to ask this question is to say do you consider yourself to be a part of a movement or an industry or both? Um, so I, I don't know if you, yeah, if, if that resonates, we oftentimes refer to it yeah. as the green building industry because it's, I think the one that's sort of maybe most known, but how do you, yeah. how do you think about that for yourself? Well, so I grew up in Oregon and I feel like Oregon was always the place where everyone recycled and grew their own food and, I don't know. I, I feel like our our roots from when I was a kid in the 70s are still sort of um, a little bit like hippie roots, maybe. Um, and so I feel like Oregon always had a sense of caring for the environment and sort of being sustainable in terms of your your own life, you know, how much, how many resources you, you use up in your own household, right? So I feel like that green building industry is always was always in the back of my mind. It's part of my um, upbringing as a kid. It's, you know, part of everything now. And so I always felt connected to it in a way that I just felt like it's, it's our duty as people who are creating something to do it in a way um, that is respectful, um, you know, and that's respectful of the environment and of the people inside. So I think that in terms of the industry, I don't, I don't feel that I'm necessarily part of it. I feel like I 
I hold it close to me, but um, it's really more about trying to do more each time you do a project, you know, um, and trying to sort of level up and say like, okay, well, you know, we figured this out, we're innovating in this area, and uh, this is where we can push on the next project. Um, it just seems like the right thing to do and the way that we want to practice in order to feel proud of the work that we're doing and what we're putting out there. So, um, yeah, I guess I just feel like it's ingrained in me as an Oregonian, and um, I keep thinking about it. Hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, okay, well, so how do you think uh, collectively, those of us that are trying to transform the building industry, like how do you think we are doing? What are, where do you feel like most progress has been made? Where do you think we have not seen enough progress as a, as a group? I think we've made a lot of pro progress in terms of visibility and that the general public who are not in the building industry do recognize things like LEED and recognize, you know, the term sustainable design. And they understand that that's, you know, about, about resources and about, um, you know, efficiency. And so I think that that's what we've done well so far. Um, I think that there, you know, there are, so there's so many different like third party certification kinds of things like lead that you can go through and the rules kind of always change. And I think that's what kind of makes designers a little bit jaded about it is that you're always chasing, you know, one more point or one more thing that you didn't do on the last project in order to get uh, the same certification. So I feel like, I don't know what the change there needs to be, but I feel like that is a reason that there isn't, you know, 100% buy-in from, from the industry. But I think that um, where we have, we've made good progress in making sort of everyone understand that it's important, um, even if the scale at which things are done maybe isn't, it's not as big as it could be. We could always do more, um, but yeah, I, we could always do more. Hmm. Yeah. Oh man, I, there's like so many things that that brought up that we don't. Yeah, have <laughs> it's good food for thought for me for sure. Um, yeah. Oh well, okay. So uh, yeah, thank you for that. I, think it's, <laughs> I don't know. It's, uh, it's I know a, that's a big one. Yeah, it's a totally big one, but it's great. Yeah. That's why we're doing <laughs> for big questions and ideas like that. Um, okay, well, so we have one last question yeah. that we like to ask all our guests, and I'm really excited to hear. Um, who you want to talk about here, but who are you most inspired by these days? Um, anyone that that is out there in the world that you want to give a mention to? Yeah, there are so many people doing really great things in different ways. And I think lately I've focused a lot on people who are um, leaders as Black architects, right? Who are being really visible and who are sort of changing what people think of as architects. You know, I think uh, a white man is typically what someone thinks an architect is. You know, when I tell someone I'm an architect, they're like, oh, wow. Like, they're so amazed. Um, like I'm an astronaut or something. And, and it's really just like, well, this is a regular job that a lot of people have, just not as many women and people of color as, you know, it's not representative of the population, right? Um, so the people who I'm really inspired by right now and I really follow a lot are, um, Pascal from AJ Associates. She has been doing such great work, um, sort of being really visible and talking about how design impacts um, communities. And I'm just really thrilled every time I get to hear her talk about something. She's so passionate and so sincere and authentic about her work. And it's really, it feels like it's very much a part of her. You're seeing her as you know, this is who she is all the time. And I find that really valuable that it's not, it doesn't see, feel like it's a persona. It feels like these are, you know, this is everything that she does all day long. And I, I strive to be that way as well. Um, Stephen Lewis at ZGF, we'd, we've had a few conversations and he is so great because, you know, he's been in the industry longer than I have. And he just has different ideas about how things, how things should be. Um, and I am, I, I think that, you know, last time he and I had a conversation, we were talking about um, sort of history and, 
and telling the history of, of black folks related to urban planning and design and things like that. And that kind of stuff makes me really emotional. And sometimes it's hard for me to sort of have that kind of conversation with someone. Um, and for him, it's very like, no, this is the way it needs to be and everyone needs to hear it. And so I also take inspiration from him about just, um, these are the facts, absorb them in your own time. And then, you know, meet me on the other side of this fence <laughs> and let's get something done. So I'm really, I. Yeah, he's very inspirational to me. Mm -hmm. And Liz Ogbu is a, you know, a citizen architect. And I also strive to be that as well. Someone who is very much about um, all of the people who are gonna be in the building. And that's really, you know, in the, in the intro, when it says, you know, that I am really thrilled about creating places that are accessible to all. Sometimes people think accessible as in ADA accessibility, as in mobility accessibility, but I'm really thinking about cultural accessibility. Do I feel welcome in this space or not? Do I feel um, monitored and surveilled in this space or not? And that's the kind of accessibility that I really focus on in my work. So, you know, everyone at NOMA, um, you know, we've created a new chapter here in Portland, NOMA PDX, um, and we're going to have the uh, national conference here, the NOMA national conference here next year. And I'm just so thrilled to be part of that community where there are people who are um, doing the work that I like to do, but really just being there to support each other, um, especially in a state where there's only four licensed architects who identify as black. It's uh, really great to be at a whole conference with you know, thousands of other people who are just like me working in different places. Uh, I find that really amazing. And um, I think next up is maybe you know, living buildings or passive house kind of things. I think that's, you know, what I mean by sort of leveling up or doing more every time, right, is I think that's someplace that we haven't gone quite yet. And um, because there are a lot of requirements, but I'm really interested and I, and I really think that, you know, in the next couple of years, uh, we'll get there um, and, and have there be many more examples for people to understand what that is and therefore be less intimidated by the idea of living building or passive house. If you can actually see it, then you can do it. And that's the same with being visible as a black woman in architecture. If people can see me, then they can also do what I do. Oh man, that's, that's beautiful and such a great way to wrap up as well, because it's just been such a pleasure to have you here and to help with a little bit of this visibility on you and your work. I, um, I know that this is going to inspire um, everybody that listens. So uh, thank you for taking the time um, to, to be visible, as you put it. It's really, it's really great. And yeah, just thank you for being here with us. Thank you. This is a really fun conversation. It's, I loved it. Oh, good. Well, we <laughs> loved it too. Um, yeah. And that is it for us, I think, this week on the Design the Future podcast. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Please leave us a review on Apple. It helps. It matters. Uh, people find us that way. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>